Good morning, Sarah Hepler. <laughs> Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. So we're we're opposite right now. Usually it's later for me because I'm in New York and you're in Dallas and I am in Portland right now. So it's only you're in Portland, in Oregon. Here. Girl reporter on the road. Oh man, has have I been on the road? This has just been a crazy trip. I mean, just crazy. Uh, smashing in just like 400 interviews in two days um, and really, really uh, remunerative. And, and I hope that I can, I hope that I can write the story I came out here to write. Shall I tell you a little bit about it, Sarah? Hubbard? Yeah, sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Portland and what's going on there? Yeah. So uh, I think it, if it wasn't our last episode, it was the one before that I started talking about um, the murder of a 36-year-old mother, mother of six. Um, her name is Rachel Abraham. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about it at that point. What I did know is that a bail organization that, um, and there were a lot of these kinds of organizations that work toward raising bail for a specific community. And as I said in our last episode, you want to, you know, you want to have a bail fund for left-handed Croatian tennis players, go ahead. That's fine. But in my opinion, and I think pretty much everyone's opinion, you have to do some due diligence. You can't just go and bail out violent criminals and not expect some occasionally bad outcomes. So there's something called the Portland Freedom Fund. It started in um, 2020 um, with the mission to uh, provide bail for Black, Brown, and Indigenous uh, people convicted of various crimes. I don't know if they had a particular like slot, we're going to only bail you out for this. But it, but they did bail out um, a guy who had thrown a Molotov cocktail at police. I know more about them now. When, when we talked about it last time, I thought, were this just some sort of like podunk little thing. No, they've actually been around and had quite a lot of money. The bail that they provided for the guy that threw the Molotov cocktail, I believe was it was uh, north of $200,000, which is which is a lot of money. Um, but he actually did wind up going to prison for 10 years. So that was not a good bet on their part. They came in and provided $2,000 bail for a man named uh, Muhammad Aden. And um, he, for the past for this year, he has been physically abusing the mother of his two, uh, her two youngest children, breaking into her apartment. Uh, they don't live together anymore, and uh, beating her and strangling her. And she had uh, she had called the police on him multiple times. Um, for the last time when he was arrested, he'd had he'd broken off his ankle monitor at, to go and mm. um, and attack her again. So it, it's a little murky right now for me trying to understand the DA's office um, set bail at $60,000, though apparently the cap for a domestic violence bail is 20K. But they realized that this guy was so dangerous, they set it at 60K and the prosecutor did not want him to be released. And the judge did not want him to be released. They called, they said she was under like threat of lethality. Like it was bad. And yet somehow he was um, let out on for, for, the bail was moved to 20,000. Nobody can figure it out yet. I'm trying to get to the bottom of that now. I've got like eight attorneys helping me mm. get papers and find things. And um, so he was, Portland Freedom Fund came in and um, they paid $2,000 because that's how bail works. It's 10%. And um, a week after he was let out, he went and he murdered her. So obviously the Portland Freedom Fund is under some scrutiny here. Um, they have not, as I predicted, backed down from their mission. Um, though I did hear uh, one of the um, board members on the radio saying, you know, we we basically, we, we pick 
who we're going to bail out based on word of mouth and sort of like community people. And he admits that uh, they needed to do a better job in this case. And I think everybody I've spoken to has said, you know, bail, you know, getting people out of jail for stupid things like you, you know, you stole three pairs of jeans from Nordstrom's or, you know, you know, maybe you have a, I don't know about DUI, but whatever, for things that are nonviolent crimes. Yeah. Why are we, why are we sticking people in jail? Someone who has been multiply arrested for strangling and beating a woman, this is a violent felon and he should not, there should, there should be, I'm sorry, there should be zero opportunity for bail for violent crime. I'm sorry. Now people are going to say, well, well, Nancy, you know, how, who decides what violent crime is? It's like, well, you have to be smart. If you, anyway, Portland Freedom Fund did not do their due diligence, and um, and she's dead. Um, and I have been uh, interviewing a, a number of people, including people that were close to her. It's been very moving, you know, when you when you write about people that were murdered, which this is now the oh, probably the fifth murder story mm-hmm. I'm walking into. It's it, it's a it's an awesome responsibility. I mean, you are talking to people about something absolutely terrible, they are going to either A, not want to talk to you, and there have been some people that don't want to, or there's they're they're very fragile. Um, and then they understand that you're trying to bring this person that has been robbed from them back. You're trying to tell this person's story, which is of course what I'm trying to do. And so that's can, been moving. Yeah. Can I ask a few questions? Has yes. the has the press, has there been a lot of coverage of this story? Yes. So uh, there's a TV station here, KGW, that's done a magnificent job um, telling the story fully or as fully as, you know, as they could at the time, like the day after. They also did a deep, deep data dive into Portland Freedom Fund. So apparently in the state of Oregon, it may be sort of similar across the nation, um, the percentage of people that do not return to face trial after they've made bail is 7%. This kind of makes sense because, you know, usually when you're getting bail, who's bailing you out? It's grandma. It's your brother. You know, it's like people that you know that care about you and it's their money on the line. Maybe they've, you know, taken out a right. second mortgage on their house. You're not going to just dip. It's, it's, it's our, but when you've got like a strangers and you, I don't think it was Mr. Don who went to Portland Freedom Fund. I think I'm trying to get to the bottom of how they got involved in his case. I don't know the answer to that yet. But in terms of Portland Freedom Fund, the number of people that they've bailed out that have not returned to face their court date, 39 of the 67 people they've bailed out have not returned. This is this is a horrible percentage. Okay. I'm yeah. terrible at math, but what are you looking at? Like 60%. Right. Um, so, and this kind of makes sense because you don't, you're, I mean, you're glad to be bailed out, but you don't know these people. You know, you go on and, and and I've looked into a few of the cases. They go on to another state. They're committing more crimes. And, you know, initially when this bail fund came out, I read about it in uh, one particular uh, paper here, the Portland Mercury, which is very, very, very progressive all weekly. They talked about how, like, you know, it was so nice. They mailed out this young father of two. He was like 19 or 20 at the time. And he, he was out in times for Father's Day. You know, it's one of these like kind of hearts and flowers things. And like, Who's going to be mad about that? Like, no, you can't be. But then I looked him up and it's like, you know, the year later he was arrested with a gun in Las Vegas. And you're like, this is not like a super cool hearts and flowers story. So I'm not really sure how Portland Freedom Fund, if their mandate is sort of uh, more important to them than the individual cases. I'm not going to say that. I don't know. I'm trying to get, uh, I'm trying to, uh, to, 
speak with one person, and I think you and uh, the listeners will like this, you know, you're, you're a journalist and you have to find people. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. And this one person I've been trying to find, I just literally cannot find the dude. Like I, there's, I can't find an email for him. I can't find a phone number. I've asked people, you know, fellow journalists, do you have like any kind of beat on this guy? The only thing I was able to find was his home address. So I hand wrote a letter yesterday because I, I don't have a printer here with me in Portland. I hand wrote him a letter and delivered it to his house to his wife who was in the yard with their baby. Oh wow! <laughs> saying, saying, could you hi? Could you give this to so and so? And you know, he's got my information now, and maybe he'll call or email. But it's like this is what you call shoe leather <laughs> reporting. Yeah, 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 yeah. When you're going to people's houses. Okay, so you have more questions, lady. Well, I, I was going to say, what was it about this story that got you to go across the country and look into it? I mean, why this now? Well. That gosh, boy, Sarah Heffley, you are an editor because every every publication, I try to tell this to the baby journalists. They're like, I've got this great story about me sitting in my room. It's like, yeah. So anyway, your editor's gonna say, why this story now? Why this story now is always so why this story now is because people in Portland and other parts of the country will send me stories, they'll DM me about certain cases, um, because they feel things are happening in Portland that they find upsetting or interesting or whatever. So this has been gathering. There's been sort of this gathering storm of stories. And I thought I kind of have to go out there. Then when this happened, I thought there are certain things here that are not making sense. And that's always why we walk into stories, right? It's like, this doesn't make sense to me. So I want to see if I could try to make sense of it. So I came out here without... I, I had one person that was maybe going to speak with me. Um, I came out here not knowing. I, I think I may be writing it for a certain publication. I'm not going to go into what that is now. But I thought even if it doesn't work out or even if I can't get anybody to talk to me, I'm just going to go because I, I think I wrote this to you or to somebody. It's like if you show up, sometimes the story does too. It's like when I went to Ukraine, like I didn't have a particular assignment, but I'm like, I'm going to show up and and you know it works out. People, you're, you're there on site. So not only has it, but I have met so many interesting people this trip. I mean, so many who are very concerned for certain things that are going on in Portland, um, who really, really want to be part of um, taking a city that was on the ascent and then kind of dog-legged into some maybe not great things, but are not, they either don't have the will or the skill or the support to change things partly because maybe you've got the wrong people in there, partly because the system of government sort of makes it so that nothing can ever get done, but mm-hmm. also because they've they've sort of pledged to these, if you want to call them very progressive kind of ideals that are like that are not working. I'll give you an example. So they decriminalize drugs. And I don't have a problem with decriminalizing drugs. I think they should be decriminalized. Um, so what's happened to the streets of Portland? I, I had some videos up on Twitter. You have people shooting up in the streets. Okay, so that's going to happen. Is it the case that people are like, wow, drugs are decriminalized now. I think I'll start using heroin. Probably not. Right. It's probably the case that people that used to shoot up in an alley or at home, you know, most addicts are found who overdose, they're found, they're found dead inside their homes because you're we're not allowed to do it in the streets, right? So now they're in the streets. Um, but it's also because it's decriminalized here. So you've got people maybe from other parts of Oregon or other parts of the country. It's like, oh, well, I'm I'm an addict and so I can do this here without fear. Well, this creates certain sort of like pinpricks in in society, right? And when I say pinprick, I mean things that are sort of shredding the sort of social 
even just aesthetics for, sorry, I'm being a little inarticulate here. Like you go down the street right by Portland State on a street that is kind of like a nice street. My ex used to live on this street. And there's just these two very young guys sitting on the steps of this Victorian, just shooting up at two o'clock in the afternoon. And it's like, there's always going to be stuff on the street, but this is sort of like, it just sort of like spreads a little bit. So there's, there's concerns there. So what did Portland not do? Just as many places in the country haven't done, you decriminalize drugs, but you don't put the other part of it in. Like you right. want to be, it feels like it's missing you, a step of some kind. You're not providing the the treatments or the 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 the. And I'm not just talking about like harm reduction centers where you can shoot up and they're going to bring you back to life because I personally think those are sort of cruel. It's like someone is an addict. So yeah, let's give them a place to like overdose and we'll bring them back to life so they can do it again. But I get a lot of pushback on that. Like just places if you want treatment or if you want if you want help, they haven't put that into place. So I have a lot of people that spoke with me, mostly off the record, um, about the problems with, with Portland government. And if things don't change. They are going to just spin out and get worse. But I've also talked to some people that have some of the most interesting ideas for solutions. One I'm not going to talk about yet, but I will be Mm -hmm. doing more about in the future. It's fascinating. So to kind of round out, to answer your question, I came out here because there's more to write about Portland. I was in this city as it ascended. I was in this city when it dog-legged and I've covered it. And now where is it going to go? It's sort of like the, it's sort of like the death and possible rebirth of an American city. And so I want to stay on that story. I have some dreams of maybe doing a larger podcast series about it. I'm kind of kicking that out around now. So uh, podcast producers, hit me up because I, I got a story for you. Um, yeah. So yeah. so that's why I came. I just thought, Nancy, it doesn't. you're going for three days. It's never going to be a bad thing. Also, I had come up from LA because I went and saw the... Um, the taping of the Bill Mayer show with uh, that Matt was on. Matt Walsh was yeah, on on Friday. Bomar, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that was a really good show, by the way. I really That's enjoyed it. it. Yeah, it was a great show. It's too. very exciting. If you haven't seen last Friday night's episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, um, I would check it out. It's It's got a lot of great moments, um, including, you know, I really enjoyed his uh, the interview with Wynton Marsalis, yep. who was, yep. uh, you know, classic jazz guy. He was like kind of just like a chill dude. Um and you know. I, I want I just I've watched the show before, obviously, and I've been at w- another taping about three years ago. Um, but I found this one to be so much really of a conversation. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like, okay, my, my turn to talk, your turn to talk. It was and like some like interesting discrepancies and disagreements, but also just like a super, super great conversation amongst a bunch of smart dudes. It was a it was a pleasure. And then there was a little after party and we all t- it was just it was really nice. It was a really yeah. nice experience. And, and I feel and- to be clear, I don't know that we mentioned this. So Matt Welch, who's your your good buddy, and um, yep. you know w- one third of the the great uh, triumvirate that is the fifth column, um, and also you know was on Bill Maher as well as uh, Scott Galloway, who is uh, also does a podcast with Kara Swisher. And I don't know that much about Scott, but I really liked him on that show. I thought he made a real a lot of really great points. I mean, some of them were about kind of like the unequal distribution of, of fairness on, on Tinder, for instance. Um, what else did he talk about? Masculinity. I thought he made a lot of really interesting points about, about men being lost. Um, yeah, I didn't, I did I, I knew his name, but I didn't know like anything about him. I thought he came off super well. I thought that they all had, um, 
just like slightly different views on an issue, which made it fuller, which made for yep. like a fabulous conversation. I really did like toward the end. So the way the the mayor, why am I calling him mayor, Bill Maher? The I don't know, but I, I did that thing where I just corrected you. I just, Thank you. I like that. No, yeah. I, li- I, I think like it's because it's sounding like John Mayer. And I was like, yeah. that's not. Yeah. No, I, I, I like it when people correct me. I don't have a problem with that. Um, um, so the way the format works is, you know, Bill comes out and he gives a little monologue and then he sits with one particular guest, just one-on-one, they talk. And then there's the panel and the panel was Matt Welch and Scott Galloway and Bill. And then Wynton Marsalis came in at the end, which was what they called a, I don't know if they showed it on the show. I think they do it just for YouTube. It's a, uh, it was, so it was all four of them up there. And mm-hmm. um, they were talking about, uh, Galloway was talking about porn and how apparently yeah. young guys or they like they ask like what what is your generation's biggest hurdle or something i don't remember what the question was and it was porn it's like wow really and he really really started to just get angry about that and then he started he started in on tiktok and and marsalis is like hold on a second hold on a second he's like you know they don't allow any porn on tiktok it's the oh no i know what he was doing he was kind of like getting down on the chinese and tiktok yes he was i mean galloway had this whole idea that like you know the chinese government is putting its thumb on the scales of um the algorithms of tiktok and and sowing sort of so you know seeds of social discord right wanted it banned but uh, right, but then then be, and he was tying this also in with porn. And Marcellus is like, you know who's making the porn? It's the Americans. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. He's, he's right. Anyway, it was a it was a fun night, and um, LA was night there. I was there like literally for the blink of an eye, and then I uh, came up here. So yeah, this is my West Coast swing. Um, heading back to um, heading back to the city today. Get back at midnight, and then tomorrow, um, the woman who took me in in Ukraine when I literally. I I didn't know where I was staying or going or anything. I got off a transport train at two in the morning in Lviv and was met by, oh my God, it's a whole story, like it, by this woman's husband I'd been texting. And um, anyway, she's coming with her two daughters, 10 and 15, tomorrow uh, to stay with me for about six days. Um, she got out of the country. Her husband's been kind of begging her to leave with the children. And so she did. Then she'll be in Florida for um, about two months, I guess, with a Ukrainian family. And so she's going to see me. I'll show her the city. So that has been my my uh, my week. Well, while you were doing valuable reporting in Portland, I was doing very hard hitting shoe leather reporting by watching the Emmys. That was last night. That was last night. Yes. Yes. Tell me about the Emmys. And I also want to know if by any chance, because I want to know, uh, if Reservation Dogs was at all part of the show? To my knowledge, I mean, I felt like they were shut out, you know, there I didn't okay. see any okay. nominations at all. Okay. Emmys are TV, right? That You got it. Yeah. I'm Nancy sorry. Rommelman, the expert on the Emmys. You can see by that, she'll be holding forth quite deeply about what this means to our culture, why the Emmys matter. Um, yes. First question, the Emmys are about television. Um, you know, I used to be such an award show junkie, which is what, you know, is one of my great guilty pleasures growing up. I think just growing up, I didn't have a lot going on. And that thing just kind of like sunk its hooks into me. I loved this idea of kind of like Hollywood's big night. Obviously, Oscars was the big thing, but I loved the Emmys and I knew everything that was going on. I was super invested in it. I haven't watched this show in several years. 
Um, but I watched it last night. I was I was curious. They'd come back from a couple years of COVID and they were having their first big thing. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd be curious about it. You know, I, I don't want to stay here too long because I think I think um, if your first thought is, gosh, do the Emmys really matter? I think the obvious uh, answer to that is, is no, no, <laughs> like a really like super <laughs> mediocre, uh, award show. Um, there were things that were really fun about it. There were some cool moments, but in general, I think it was, um, you know, like it's, it's another entry into this, like, like not terrible, but not that interesting, night of television. Um, you know, if it's, uh, if it's there to celebrate television, it's not really bringing out the best parts of that. Um, Keenan Thompson was the, uh, was the host. I love him. Was he he good? is great. He is great, but I'll tell you what, not a great host. I think he okay. plays off other people. I think he's okay. not so much a solo act. Okay. I would put, I would actually like to sign a petition to ask Ricky Gervais to to host all award shows from from now on. I just he, think he's so yeah. great. I mean, just he is, so unexpected. He's, no, he's yeah, he's he, so acerbic, and they and yeah. No, I, I don't know that been that's like, what. No, yeah, they he's don't been want that or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought he. I think he's hilarious too. Usually, but he's so really been, funny. And the thing yeah. is, is this just, it wasn't very funny. I mean, there were like oh. these two moments, you know, Steve Martin and Martin Short uh, gave uh, an award and I think they'd written their own jokes and they were like, the jokes were actually funny. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah. This is what it's like when like, when like professional, uh, you know, like MCs get up there and do their thing. It's, it's actually funny. Um, so who, so who won? I mean, I, I, I want to even know if I've heard of the shows. <laughs> I know, right? So, um, so the big winner was uh, Succession. Not surprising. Loved. Love, yeah, amazing love, show, love, incredible love, show. Love. Yeah. Um, and the other big winner was uh, the White Lotus. Do you know that? Oh, one? I do. I actually. So that's one of those shows. You know, shows come out and it's like, ah, you hear it like everywhere. White Lotus, White Lotus, White Lotus. And it, sometimes I get stuck like a brat. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to watch that. Because everybody else is watching right. it, but uh, but Michael Moynihan um had watched it, and I was like, yeah, let me give it a shot. And it's quick; I think it's five episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was I a mini it a series. It wasn't a full yeah. series. I gave it a shot. Yeah, I did like it actually. Boy, you know, people say that you know, how can you like any of the characters in Succession? And that is true, and it's playing in a certain way. But you want to talk about? really not liking any characters in a show. The White Lotus is like, where like where 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 do I find Cordero here? Because each one is just more maddening. But I thought it was really good. And it's super fast. It's like you can watch it in two nights, just go like bing bing bing. And um I liked it. I I, I think it I think it deserved to win. I think I, if I have which is not surprising, the uh the creator got in some hot water because he said something because you're not allowed to say anything these days. That's I don't know. But um I don't remember. Anyway, I liked well, it. Mike I, White. They, Mike White is the creator. He's it. always been that's a little it. bit off off kilter. I mean, his original pieces are these really unconventional movies like Chuck and Buck, and um then he eventually did School of Rock. That was his big mainstream okay. hit. But he's done some oddball stuff over the years, including he did a great series called um, Enlightened with Laura Dern. Um, hmm. And he did a m m sort of oddball, like he's just, he 
he does a lot of oddball stuff. He did a movie called The Year of the Dog. Anyway, um, he is he he won several awards. Jennifer Coolidge, who who other yeah. people might know, yeah, yeah, is yeah. Stifler's mom, Stifler's mom from American Pie. Um, but she's a great comedic actress. She won for that. Um, they had this weird thing where they were playing people off really fast because I guess last year the the speeches went too long. So there was just this like really like rapid, you know, like like they would start playing you off really fast. And she they started playing her off, but she was like in the middle of like listing people and she just started dancing. You know, it was kind of this like, you know, goofy, mo- like, like she definitely played it really well, but, yeah. um, yeah. but it wasn't, uh, like it was a little bit ungracious, but it's hard to, to go both ways. Like I really appreciated the fact that this was like a, like it was like a hard out at three hours, you know, sometimes these things go for like four hours yeah. and you're going like, Oh yeah. my God. But they had a lot yeah. of dumb filler and you know, I anyway, know. um, so then the big viral moment, which people will be talking about today, and um, uh, of course, this will this will drop tomorrow, but uh, is, it, okay, so the other, you know, the big underdog success story uh, has been Abbott Elementary. Do you know Abbott Elementary? I never even heard of it. Okay. So it is a very buzzy show. It's on ABC. It's a kind of, it's about a sort of embattled West Philadelphia uh, elementary school. And it takes place amongst the teachers there, the struggling teachers. And it's kind of like an office thing where they're doing a, you know, they're doing a documentary about failing high schools. And so they're interviewing all the characters and the characters are all sort of quirky and endearing and they're all working together to kind of make it in this in this high school that has no funding and has all these things kind of working against it. Um, it's very appealing. I've only seen a few episodes, but it's, you know, it's it's like very uh, endearing character comedy, right? Um, it's made, it, it's created by the star of the show who's a young woman named Quinta Brunson, I believe. Um, and, you know, she's very beloved. One of the, um, one of the, the like, controversial moments of the show was that she won an award for writing. She's a young black woman. She goes up to t- accept her award. And right before that, Jimmy Kimmel um, has been up there, you know, giving the the award away with Will Arnett, they did a bit where Jimmy Kimmel was passed out on the floor and the joke was he'd had 13 margaritas or like he'd been drinking at the bar because he'd want, he'd lost the Emmys 13 times. Right. So it was like, it was <laughs> like, funny. like, like it was, it was like a little bit funny that, you know, he was on the floor passed out, but then he didn't move. And so when Quinta got up to give her speech, she had to walk over him and he just he laid there and she was kind of like, hey, Jimmy. And he was like he like gave her the thumbs up and stayed there. Well, I don't know if he was aware of like the optics of this, that like every like, first of all, black Twitter made this like a total metaphor for like uh, everything a black woman has to do. Like you've got to step over some white guy that's oh in your God. way. That's pretty good. That's pretty right? funny. Right. And then, um, you know, and and it's a little awkward that this is this woman's moment. And then there's this dude just lying there in all the pictures. Right. So my guess is he just wasn't he wasn't really thinking about the fact that he probably he probably was like, when the hell do I get up from this from this bit? Like, do I get up now when she's announced? Do I interrupt the speech? I'm just going to lie here. And then so it's. 
I can understand he was extending the joke. I get that. Like, he probably felt like, it's funny. Uh, it's really funny. It's Is it funnier because I'm so out of it I can't get up? He he should have gotten up. He should have given her the thumbs up or given her a kiss on the cheek and exit yeah, stage right. up and, and exited. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. it is her moment. And her moment, that's actually, I mean, I am not going to extend the metaphor because I think it's just not, there's no, we yeah, know what it is. Yeah, we we say it. it. We got it. But but I but I I think he did step on her moment. I mean, it's a big deal, you know, to get an Emmy for writing, and she's a young woman. Well, and like and she should, she's a young she should woman. have had she's her moment. She's got yeah. a really cool story where she kind of rises up from like I think she was doing like Instagram stories that were like funny bits about dating, and then she started doing BuzzFeed videos, and then she wrote for Larry Wilmore, and you know, and she's awesome. just like she's she's stepped her way up to this, you know star and writer of this show that people have really loved. I mean, it's one of these things that, um, you know, in, in a way, it's a little bit like a reservation dogs, you know, it just kind of like makes you feel good. And, and it's, awesome. it's interesting. And, and it's about a very difficult, I mean, educators like are, are boy, that's an embattled career. Um, so anyway, uh, and then the other big viral moment was that one of the, uh, the, supporting cast in that her name is Cheryl Ralph Lee or Cheryl Lee Ralph um let me get this real quick Cheryl Lee Ralph uh she plays one of the like you know in, she she plays an older teacher a very strict you know keeps everybody in line teacher she won and it was this really interesting moment I mean she's been around Hollywood forever and she kind of like you know she's kind of like in shock and she walks up to the stage she's this She's this beautiful middle-aged black woman with like a dress slid up to her like hip bone. And she's sauntering up there and kind of looking shell-shocked. And she just opens her mouth and starts singing. She starts oh. singing a Diane Reeves song who uh, called Endangered Species. And she has the most incredible voice. I mean, I had no idea. It turns out she had made her debut. Uh, well, not her, but, but one of her big opening things is, is that she was in the 1981 Broadway version of Dreamgirls. So she has that incredible incredible voice and she just starts singing and everyone's just like what i'm so, i do you do you see that i'm crying i know nancy because hasn't even heard it yet it doesn't matter because so <laughs> not very good but i sing all the time and singing is just this absolute primal thing that everybody in the entire world can can caboose onto and understand. But the thing is that she, it just, I mean, maybe she planned it, maybe she didn't. It's just that you have to. It's just this, this, this just like exuberance that's coming at you. I occasionally, I eat something so delicious and then I start singing because it's so unbelievably delicious. And she did that. I just, I love this. I love it. Well, this is, I mean, so like I am, I am a musical nerd. Um, I, I don't watch musicals that much anymore, but when I was growing up, I really did love them very deeply. Uh, dream Girls is actually, I adore the, the musical Dream Girls. Um, and, you know, I love this idea. It's a very silly one and it's been made, you know, endless fun of, but this idea that there are moments that are so emotional that they are beyond words, right? That's right. 
And yeah. well, so they have to be expressed in song. So when she did this, and I, I, to my memory, I've never seen anybody do this in an acceptance speech. And I've been watching these for many years. So she sings this song. It's a 1993, like, soul jazz song. I didn't really know it. Um, but the lyrics are, I am an endangered species, but I sing no victim song. I'm a woman, I'm an artist, and I know where my voice belongs. And so she sings this in this, you know, giant theater that has just been struck silent. Yeah, pin drop. Pin drop. And everybody was just like, I mean, here is this woman in her 50s. She's been knocking around this industry for 40 freaking years, right? As, uh, you know, like a, like an older black woman, you know, <laughs> it's just, and now she has her moment. It was, it was really super cool. That's moving. And the thing is that, yes, all those coordinates that you just added, added to it, but you also could have had a 17 year old girl go up and do that. And it would have been like, just as startling, like what, I mean, as if you were, do, but I, I mean, she's got more gravity, I guess. Anyway, I, I well, I'll just tell that. you that voice was not the voice of a 17 no. year old. <laughs> it was the voice of somebody that had been around yeah. and seen some yeah. shit. And that was part of, to me, yeah. what made it so intense. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I don't like identity politics. You know that, but I'm saying that, you know, in an industry that it, the older you get, the harder it gets. It, it's it's right. to You're see right. a woman just like rise up like that. In fact, you know, right after that, they had a bit with Lizzo and, uh -huh. you know, uh, they, they cut to Lizzo and Lizzo actually looks a little bit panicked. Like, I've got to follow <laughs> this up. Like, I've never <laughs> seen Lizzo, who is an incredible badass, look like uh, you guys, uh, uh -oh. I don't think I've got this. <laughs> and in fact, her bit was a little bit shaky. She was in this like unreal red dress that went for miles. The big fashion statement last night was these crazy trains, you know, not crazy train, like, um, Ozzy Osbourne uh, crazy yeah, train, yeah, yeah. but like, but like a uh, wedding crazy train, you know, they yeah, were, yeah, yeah. uh, but anyway, uh, you know, she had this just incredible, like, just chiffon explosion. And, uh, you know, they that she was just sort of like, hi, okay, so... And it was, it was so weird because she seemed really young and she seemed... Uh, anyway, I'm a big Lizzo fan. So, uh, you All know, right. and she, she's... I think she's accustomed to stealing the show. So that was like a little bit of, a, oh, of an good. off moment. For her, but yes, exactly. And then she won. Right. She won. She won for her reality show and made a very moving speech. Um, let's see. I think that's all I have to say. Oh, except I'm going to say one more thing, which was one of my I, I, did. So Matthew McFadden, who plays Tom in Succession. Oh my god! I, uh, oh he's my god! Right? He's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. He's the best. He's yeah. I just like, and he gets up to can't. accept his award, and he's British. Oh, you didn't know that? I didn't know no, that. I didn't, I didn't know, know that. that. I've I seen like him an in. Idiot. I've seen him in a uh, some British historical show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, yeah. I felt like an idiot. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know how I missed that. And yeah, uh, yeah he had this really s lovely British accent. So, yeah, yeah, he's great. Anyway, if you haven't watched Succession, go watch. Oh my it. God! If you haven't watched Succession, yeah. oh. 
Yeah. Well, I, yeah. you know, a lot of people say, so this is what I hear about succession often. And I really understand it because I actually had this problem. People will say, I just didn't want to spend time with people that were that awful. You know, Insist- and I, I, well, I, I do get that because there's a lot of terrible characters in that show. And I, I honestly dropped it for a little bit for that reason. I did the same. I did the same. I started watching it when I, because it started when I was still living in Portland. And I think I said to my husband, I'm like, you want to check this out? I think we watched a few episodes and then I don't know, between moving and pandemic and all this. And then I, I dropped it. And I was like, you know, people were talking about it the second season. Like, all right, let me go back. And then I was like, and maybe it even gets better. I don't know. Meaning. It was, but it's, it's, it's just so shocking. Everything is so shocking in that show. You're just like, what? I think it gets better in its second season. And to me, it's just like this incredible combination of like, I don't know. It's like Arrested Development meets the West Wing meets Game of Thrones. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. It's just mercenary. It's firing on all cylinders and it's so good. Everything about it is so good. And it's genuinely funny. No prisoners. Genuinely funny. Uh, the the other thing I'm going to say that was my big takeaway, I had to watch uh, commercials during this because it was streaming on uh, the app Peacock. And so, yeah. you know, you, you couldn't DVR it. So I had to watch yeah. commercials. And I saw this one commercial three times. I wasn't even aware that this commercial existed. I wonder if you do. It's the commercial that says, I'm a woman pooping on TV. Wait. Um, okay. Just okay. Continue, and then I'm going to see if I can something that's like pinging in the back of my brain. I think I've seen a. Well, it was not new. So, like the first time I saw it, I was like doing something else, and then I'm just like, "Wait, Wait what?" So and she's it's, pooping it's... in her pants. What's, no, what's it for? Diapers? What? No, <laughs> no, it's for. Um, uh, it's for. Uh, hold on, I, I I've suddenly forgotten this, but I. Uh, it's probiotics. It's for Garden of Life probiotics. And it has all these, a series of women of different ages, like in their bathroom or sitting on the toilet. And then, the, you know, this woman looks at the camera and she says, I'm a woman pooping on TV. And I was like, oh this is God. like, the, this totally looks like some sort of Saturday Night Live sketch. Completely. Yeah. But I mean, it's real. And then apparently it came out in 2021, but I I never watch commercials. So um, I just, you know, I don't know. It was one of those moments where I was like, I don't know if the authenticity thing has gone a little bit far, guys. I just, I don't, I don't need to see this. What's the, so, okay. I I actually, I've not seen this at all. So question, I don't think I'm ever going to see it, but who knows? Maybe I will. Um, Is the, it's going to sound so weird. Is the ad actually beautiful? Is it interesting? No. Like they, so it's not no, so basically. It looks like a tampon commercial, or not? No, well, no, those have like like beautiful fields and stuff like that. It's very um, like a household cleaner or something like that. It's these. It's what normally you would see these women, you know, saying like, "And I use spray Pam or whatever," but instead they're oh like, "I poop, and pooping is power." And pooping is power. What the fuck? Pooping is power. What is what? Is that the tagline? Pooping there is was a power? line. Pooping is power. <laughs> what? What? It's honestly, it's it's one of the less 
uh, enticing empowerment messages I've heard. It reminded me of a piece I read years ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember where it was. I think it was Jezebel. And it was like the real lean where we really need to lean in is pooping at work. It was this whole thing about how women don't poop at work. And we need to start well, who doing wants that. To poop at work. Nobody wants I know, to I don't, poop I don't at know. work. Nobody wants to poop when anyone else is around. My Nobody daughter, does. When my daughter was two, she went with her brother, her half brother, and her dad to Oklahoma. Okay, she's two. When you have a two-year-old, you're kind of like you're kind of like monitoring when they're going to the bathroom, like not overly, but you're kind of aware because you know you're the kid. You're trying to. So they get back. They've been gone for four days. And her brother says to me and her dad, she hasn't pooped in four days. Four days. And she's two because she wasn't home feeling comfortable. And then she sat on the toilet and made like a three foot long poop. I mean, yeah, at two, okay? You don't, this is a private thing. I will say just as a twist on There's this. There's actually so- like an adaptation that you don't poop when you're traveling because you're not as safe, you know, like- there is something in the in the body about I mean, that. Yeah, actually, that and uh, I've also read that if you're in an emergency situation and you're going to give birth, you're but like this terrible emergency happens, your body will like shut it down. Like, can't do this right now. It's too dangerous. I, I gotta like not. What do you mean? What no, do you I mean, mean like everything goes. Well, that's fear does that, I think, for like, yeah, pooping, yeah, but yeah. I'm talking about I'm talking about like um, giving birth, like you're about oh. to go into labor and have this baby. But if there's some like weird emergency, the body will shut it down for a little while and say, no, nope, not not the best moment. So Susie Weiss, who is Barry Weiss's sister and who writes for Common Sense, Barry Sight, had a piece up uh, last week about um, young women, especially finding community in being sick. Like you go online, mm-hmm. it's like this and that, blah, blah, blah. And the one thing, I'm not going to go into the whole piece, which is incredible. I, I thought she did a great job um, with the piece. Um, um, there was something, a tagline that they like, if you're, if, if illness is going to be this like sexy commodity, they had this one tagline, hot girls have IBS which is irritable right. bowel syndrome. Hot right. girls have IBS. I mean, guys, you know, IBS makes you poop in your pants, okay? Or makes you not poop. Like, how is that hot? Well, some Pooping of this, is not I, hot. So I appreciate some of this because there's been too, there's been so much shame around regular body functions, right? You know, like, and, and there's been an attempt to push back on that, okay? Books like Everybody Poops. There's been like a bestseller which is adorable. kids. Yeah, it's a little yeah, kid's yeah. book. It's great. You should get it if you've got a little kid in your life. It's, it's yeah. adorable. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's true. And there's no need to feel shame about it. But I'm going to say we've gone into overcorrection mode here. Um, yep. I don't need to see pooping in his power on the television. And uh, and yeah, I don't want to I, I don't want to hear about your. You know, what's funny. I remember uh, talking to my daughter about something. I don't know how we got on the pooping conversation. And she's like, well, I, I, she was saying something. I was like, are you are you saying like you and your friends, like girlfriends, talk about like pooping? And she's like, oh, yeah, we always we do. I was like, really? I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. They're like very. Oh. And she looked at me like, oh, mom, you're such a prude. I mean, it's not that I would like never talk about it, but like there's just a lot of other things to talk about that just doesn't strike me as something we need to talk a lot about. Yeah, it's never really come up. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is generational. They're all in the post... uh, Post Post-shame. 
Yeah, they're post shame. I mean, not that pooping is shameful. Everybody does it. So it's a little anyway, bit shameful. Like, it's a little bit shameful. Even Gwyneth Paltrow poops. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. So, um, so we were going to talk about another little story, weren't we? We were. We were. Yes, there was. Should I tee uh, us up? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Okay. So, in 2016 at Oberlin College, you know, Oberlin is often like used as the example of like the gone too far off the rails progressive scale. And, you know, sure, it maybe becomes a punching bag or a butt of jokes, but there are also reasons why this happens. And here's one of the reasons. Uh, In 2016, um, three students, Overland students, walked into a local bakery and like delicatessen called Gibson's that has apparently been around for something like 100 years. It's a family-owned business, right, in town. Not only was it like sort of a beloved place where everybody went and got their coffee and their baked goods, but they also supplied goods to Oberlin, like baked goods, right? So these three students walk in and one of them tries to buy a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine with a fake ID. And, you know, they're like, no, kid. Ain't By working. the way, while shoplifting two more bottles. And there's well, hold on. Oh, I didn't oh, know he sorry. was already shoplifting. I thought it was that he had shoplift. I thought he had shoplifted after he couldn't use the fake ID. But in any case, Mm -hmm. if you go up and use a fake ID to buy something, chances are the shopkeep has his or her eye on you, right? I mean, this is sort of like axiomatic. (laughs) Ha ha, had to get the word in there. Anyway, so instead, what happens is that this kid runs out of the store with the bottles of wine, steals them. Shopkeep runs out after him. It's a guy. It's the guy that took the wine. Guy runs out after him, gets out on the street. I don't know exactly what was said, like, give me back the wine. But the guy's two friends, two other students, there's an altercation on the street. I think it gets kind of handsy, right? Yeah, when the police show up, um, you know, uh, the the shopkeep um, is on the ground getting punched. Right. So they're arrested. The kids are arrested, right? And none of this would be a story at all except that the kids were black. And what happens, I did hear someone told me, were you the one that told me that when the one kid, the guy who had taken the wine, because his friends hadn't stolen anything, I don't believe, and Mm -hmm. they were girls, um, gets to the back of the cop car, he starts to cry. And the cops Mm -hmm. are like, what's what's going on, dude? And he's like, I'm going to be killed. You're going to kill me. This is out. someone told me, I don't know if this actually happened. But the kid was so frightened or was saying that he was frightened Mm -hmm. about police brutality, that he was going to be injured. Well, he wasn't injured. So I'm just going to cut a little bit to the chase of what happened with the kids, because then I'm going to put them to the side, because they're actually the least important part of this story. Um, Mm -hmm. They all did eventually plead guilty to Mm -hmm. whatever they did. Okay. Well, in the the days after this happens, um, Oberlin students decide that the reason um, there was, these kids were arrested that it was racism and they couldn't just say like, well, maybe there was this racist shopkeep. They weren't looking at actually what happened. Like, well, kids stole some wine and he got caught. They were saying, well, the reason he got caught is because he was being targeted because this guy was, was a racist. And not only is he a racist, but Gibson's bakery is a racist because you see, you, you, you can't just win your argument by saying, taking one little part of it. You're just going to sort of like take the brush and paint the whole thing. Well, okay, you know, 
students want to do this. They want to misread it. They hear this thing they don't really know anything about. People, students love to march and they start to march and picket outside of Gibson's. Well, not only that, but the administration gets involved and they too decide that Gibson's bakery is racist. And I guess it's a school administrator named Meredith Raimondo. She takes parts in the protest, distributing pamphlets alleging racism on the part of the bakery. What follows on the heels of this? Obviously, the bakery is upset. This is a small family business. They're trying to explain what happened. The kids are pleading guilty. It's like, we've been here for 100 years. You know us. We supply your baked goods. Oh, no, you don't anymore. They cancel. Oberlin cancels um, their contract with Gibsons. I, you know, I know something about this kind of story when these these stories, they set fire and people are now going to not only hit you in terms of your reputation, they are going to hit you in the pocketbook and they are going to make it hard for you to survive because whether they whether they understand that this is going to happen or not, this is what happens when you get this sort of ball rolling. So Gibson's takes Oberlin to court at a certain point. And I don't know, do you know the whole genesis of what happened? I'm looking here right now. Uh, a jury found that the college had defamed the owner of Gibson's Bakery and his family and awarded them $44 million. I'm reading this off of Wikipedia. When, yep. the, school when the school appeals, the court required it to post a bond while the process continued. In 2022, the Ninth Ohio District Court of Appeals unanimously upheld the 2019 19 verdict and found that the college had defamed, inflicted distress, and illegally interfered with Gibson's bakery and required the college to pay $25 million in total damages. Up until very recently, the college refused to pay. They're just like, no, we're not. We're not paying it. So again, on Barry Weiss's site, the wife of the Gibson's owner, I believe the younger ones, this is a family business. Yeah, her name is Lorna Gibson. She wrote a piece uh, for Barry, I think it was about two weeks ago, talking mm -hmm. about what had transpired. They still were not getting awarded the money. But she also talked about the fact that her father-in-law, who was like ancient, yeah. was trying to live long enough to see justice done. He didn't. Oh, but what else was happening at the same time? Her husband had cancer. Her husband had cancer, yeah. Terminal he cancer. Died so as well. So all of this going on while your husband is dying of cancer. Now, let's let's be frank. This is not just 100 students at Oberlin and the Oberlin administration coming down on you. You have millions of people around the mm -hmm. world who know nothing about you. They don't give two flying fucks if your husband is dying of cancer. And I'm going to say something else in a minute that I thought of yesterday that I never had occurred to me, and I'm going to say it because I'm going to say it. Um, they don't care. They are getting energized by the fact that they believe you are a racist. Uh, regardless of what happened, don't confuse them with any facts. This is literally, you know, I stole some panties at Bloomingdale's when I was 15, right? They took me in. They let me go because it was like, you know, whatever, under a certain amount. This is a nothing. This is a nothing burger for a student to steal a couple of bottles of wine. This, this is what teenagers steal shit. That's what they do, right? That it became this really, you know, nationwide, if not worldwide conflagration that was destroying, that did destroy, that, that these people, while your husband is dying of cancer, had to deal with this is, is unspeakable. 
it's absolutely unspeakable and that people would defend this and feel like they were the good people for fighting racism is is just it's just beyond gross anyway the reason we're talking about it today is because Oberlin's going to pony up the money yeah they have yeah. to they have to so there was a, a piece in the New York Times that talked about that. One of the things that really, you know, there's a couple things that the college does here. And remember, it's not the kids that are getting slapped with this. You know, it's the college for basically uh, going along with these protests. Um, you know, one thing we didn't mention is this incident took place the day after Trump's election. Right. When everybody has so much energy Which and they just don't cl- know what... They don't know what yeah. to do with it, right? It's yeah. like it's like someone hands you a million dollars. Like, I got to spend some of it. They're spending. They need to burn off this emotional energy. That's absolutely correct, Sarah. Why, why did the bail fund start in summer of 2020 that I'm talking about? Because the emotional energy of Trump's forces inside the, inside the courthouse was just too much. Like, we have to be able to do something with all of our anger. And these we're going to put it to these, you know, so-called good causes. Well, anyway, continue. So New York Times, well, and this yes. is, you know, this is a college that cost $80,000 a year. That's one of the things that the New York Times points out. And, you know, I'm sure there are some kids that are on scholarship and whatnot, but this has sure. to be like, like, it's so, I feel like these moments where they rise up around these issues, it feels like such an overcompensation for the fact that most of these kids are kids of extreme privilege that are in an environment that's going to continue the privilege. You know what I'm saying? They're risking nothing. They're risking absolutely nothing to get out there and say, I mean, this is a place that two days before they were going and getting their coffee and their cinnamon bun, right? And now right. it's like, okay, well, we'll just do this now because it gives us some sort of like identity or we feel that we're the good people now. They're not looking at the actual, and they've all gone on with their lives. Who's who's paid for this? Who paid for this this incident that, that, that actually absolutely caught fire? They didn't. They're off doing whatever. They graduated. They're in graduate school. They don't care. I mean, I would hope, but I, I you know, because I'm, I'm always ever hopeful that people will look at their, their, I mean, seriously, Sarah, I would hope that people that took part in this, even if it was just like passing out a leaflet or standing in front or, or believing that they would say after they understood what actually happened here, that they would say, you know what? I think I have to think a little more deeply before I start to um, accuse people of things that I really don't know anything about. I really hope that that happens. I hope that we all do that. I hope that when I've made mistakes in the past, I own up to them and and learn from them. Um, but, you know, they're in an environment where accountability is not required. A couple of interesting details um, in these stories. So in the Common Sense article, uh, one of the things that Lorna Gibson um points out is that in the wake of this whole thing, the school had proposed a deal where in the future, if a student was caught shoplifting, the store would call the dean instead of the police. That, so that, that this is incredible. That is so wild to me. And it's a really interesting extension of the logic that started to surround like sexual assault cases where the school is going to handle it instead of the police. And it's this whole this whole thing where, you know, it used to be that we didn't want the college you know, uh, adjudicating stuff that happened off campus when we were kids, like when I was in college, like you never wanted the, the college oh to deal God. with that. 
And now there's this push to have the college deal with all of it. Like they are the parents. There are like call, call, call your parents instead of calling, you know, the authorities. How many Um, times, how many times in the past uh, three years have you heard the word privilege? Would you, would you guess? Uh, 10,000. So these, these places like Oberlin are where they're shouting the loudest about privilege whether it's white privilege or male privilege or whatever privilege you want to say. And yet they want a special privilege when it comes to crime. Like, uh, I know that, I know that, you know, Townie in uh, Oberlin is not allowed to steal and he's going to go to jail. But me over in dorm C, I should have the privilege of not being arrested. I mean, well, it's insane. And, yeah. And I guess what I was saying earlier is, you know, I think that's why there is the, the, the vociferousness of the of the protests here um, is a kind of deflection of that, I think. Um, so the other detail that was interesting in The New York Times piece is that the college had criticized the bakery's, quote, archaic chase and detain policy regarding suspected shoplifters and said it was the catalyst for the protests. And I was just like, I'm sorry, if somebody shoplifts two bottles of wine, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, and then they were like, and you know, he was was skilled in martial arts. It's like, well, okay, so what? You know, maybe, maybe the guy that was running was skilled in knitting. Who the fuck cares? You steal, that is against the law. That's period. That's not archaic. I mean, this is, this is the extension of like, well, looting is good. Like, no, it's not good. It's not. Who's it good for? Who is looting good for? Looting is not good for anybody. Okay. It's, it's not good for the business. It's not good for the people that are stealing because they're, they, they are now expect that, well, I could just do this whenever I want. Nobody's going to like do anything to me. It's fine. I just, it's, it's, it's the, the, the knots that people are tying themselves in to make things that are not good look good for certain people. Is 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 ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, it, we, as long as theft is still against the law, it will be a crime for anyone. I mean, not if like, okay, my daughter walked out with a nail polish of when she was like eight years old from a save on. And I was like, where did you get that? And she took it because she was, a, I made her walk back in and give it to the clerk who could have given two shit. She's like, oh, whatever. But it's, that's, we don't steal. So, yeah. Anyway. You know, I I like to go to the New York Times readers' comments because oh, yeah. I often find oh, yeah. that they're very um, illuminating. I actually think I actually think they are that they're that's one of the better comment sections. If you go to readers' it picks is. on New it York is. Times, they're smart. They're smart. Yeah, and they are. you know, this was one of those stories where just like all like they there were so many people saying something like I'll I'll just I'll quote to you what this is. I'm a lifelong Democrat as anti-Trump as they get. I have friends who went to Oberlin and it's hard for me not to respond to their Facebook posts. They're constantly looking for something to protest, something to be offended by, some situation to blow out of proportion. If I try to talk sense to them, I'll be attacked and called names by their friends so I don't bother. But if this is how I feel as someone who is on the same half of the political spectrum as them, imagine how red America feels about this. And, you know, and that, that's, that's right. always what I think when I when I see these stories. I mean, you know, if they if they're bugging me and I'm somebody that's been on your side, like what is going on on they the other side? And, there, and there's just there's there's just, you know, comment after comment like that about this story. And, 
And the people at Oberlin and, you know, some of the situations that are happening here in Portland, they'll tell you, well, we're building a better world. I'm like, show me proof of that. Show me proof. Show me the data that you're building a better world. Well, some of the arguments will be, well, you know, and and this is definitely the case with the bail fund I'm talking about. It's like, well, historically, these people have not been able to, you know, they haven't had the sort of financial wherewithal to bail themselves out maybe. And so they sat in prison for like these stupid offenses that they shouldn't. And I'm like, this is absolutely true. Everything you are saying is absolutely true. But you, if we're going to do better moving forward, you have to practice due diligence, not just like this person gets out because, you know, we feel that this is the person that should be allowed to steal or commit violent crime. It's just, it's, Shutting up now. Not only am I shutting up, but I thought better about saying what I was going to say because okay. it's going to get me in trouble. I will just say, and this actually holds true across the board for everything. I mean, I think we talked about it once. Like, remember when you're a baby writer and you would like send an email pitch and you wouldn't hear back and you're like, oh my God, this person hates me or I was terrible. I did a terrible job. You don't know what's happening in that person's life. You don't right. know if their wife is sick. You don't know. I was actually trying to get in touch with uh, someone here, uh, someone who's high up in the in the government, and he hadn't responded to me. And I was like, "Well, okay." And he did. He's like, "Sorry, I'm on my honeymoon." Okay, like you don't know what's happening. The people who did this at Gibson's did not. I hope to Christ, they did not know that that guy was dying of cancer. I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure they had no idea, nor did they even care. They were just stuck in their own story about dismantling the system. And, you know, I I think there's just a kind of bloodlust, especially at that time. That's why I just wanted to make a note about when this happened. I just think there was a lot of ambient rage. It found this place and it's it's a it's a damn shame. It's really, really sad. I will just say one thing. I won't go into the whole backstory, but when all that stuff happened to uh, to my husband's business and our family, my ex was dying of cancer. And I, I'm sorry, but some of the people that were like very instrumental in this, they they knew that. And I thought, like, where is... So your desire is just more important. Your mission is just more important. And that's just, I just, I just don't, I just don't get it. I just don't see, I just don't see, I just, I don't get it. Well, kids are, are kids, you know, like college kids are college kids, right? But I think the thing that has been a little bit unconscionable in this stuff sometimes is the ways that the administrators play along with it. And I understand that they're caught between wanting to look supportive to certain causes of racial justice and probably colleges have not been so great about, you know, things like diversity in the past and accommodating different students. I mean, I get that and all of that is true. But when, you know... You have. There have certainly been times when administrators have have way gone over um, where they should be, and um, you know this is the lawyer in this case. You know had a had a quote in the New York Times piece that the message to other colleges is to have the intestinal fortitude to be the adult in the room. And Absolutely. that is something that we haven't always seen. And you know maybe we'll start seeing you know, maybe not colleges standing up against the students, but not necessarily joining in with them. 
And you've had college administrators, and I, I may be getting this wrong. One was at the University of Chicago. I believe one was at Bard. Bard is an incredibly liberal school. Yeah. Just saying, we are, no, we're going to have free speech. No, we are going to invite people that might might be provocative to you. Maybe you're, maybe you're right in your, what you assume about these people. Maybe you're wrong. Why don't you, exactly, why don't you, first of all, they have to have the intestinal fortitude, but they're also saying to the kids, kids, you have the intestinal fortitude. And you know how you get, better at things, you get better at things by facing them and by not just like knocking them down or saying, I can't do that. That's going to be too upsetting to me. No, we can't have Steve Bannon at the New Yorker Festival of Ideas because that's going to be too upsetting to someone in the audience. Well, why don't you give it a shot? Why don't you go and listen? And then you can actually support your argument that you think this guy is a blowhard or whatever, or just be entertained because he's kind of entertaining character, even if you think he's, you know, off his nut. Um, Oh, sorry. I lost my train of thought there. Oh, the, with the teachers. I think they're also, I think part of them, yes, to like be on the right side of history or like being supportive of, you know, an underdog or, a, or someone who historically has been kept down. They also would be, be popular with the students, right? So like, I will be a favorite teacher now. I will be, you know, they'll write nice things about me on rate your teacher or whatever, or I'll have status now on the campus that I didn't have before because I've got, you know, this coterie of 200, um, so I, I think that's, yeah, you got to be the grown up. You got to sometimes say, no, kids, we got to think. You got to think first. That's what you're there for. So, um, yeah. So I'm wondering, we're not really up against our time. I'm not sure we, we, uh, we have to get to this part of the show. But the first thing I will ask you is the name of this podcast, Madame. Madame. The name of this podcast <laughs> is Smoke Em If You Got Em. That's right. It's not I'm Pooping in Public or whatever. No. <laughs> it is yet. <laughs> and it, ne- and yeah. it never you know, will be. Listen, guys, guys, we really are trying to get more subscribers. We are trying to get people to I'm pay for pooping subscriptions. I'm not pooping in public, Nancy. I'm not, not pooping in public. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm sure so there's many an things only I chance. would do. And that <laughs> is, I will never poop in public, except <laughs> metaphorically. I'm sure there's an OnlyFans whole world oh, of that going girl. on. I'm I'm sure. Oh my god, we're leaving um, a lot of money on the table. I have uh, flush that money anyway. But yes, speaking of that, please do tell your friends to subscribe. And if you feel like uh, ponying up for a subscription, I'd love it so I can keep flying around the world, doing all this <laughs> reporting. Um, I want to tell you what's in my hot box. Oh, it's actually, goodness. yeah. So I watched a documentary. Brian Wilson, Long Promised Road. I'm a very big Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys this fan. Is about Brian Wilson? It is a documentary. Yes. It is Long Promised Road. He's is a documentary about. Okay. So I am a very big Beach Boys fan. And not just, you know, uh, the beachy surfing songs. Like, there are other, right, there are right, other right. songs. Like pet, albums, sounds. You know, pet Sounds and Holland and Smile. And just, like, really, really interesting. Brian Wilson is one of the most fascinating geniuses ever. Also, if you have not seen the movie, which is a, it's a, a film, a fictional film called Love and Mercy, I beg you, I beg you to watch this movie. It is about Brian Wilson and it is starring uh, John Cusack and um, Paul Dano. Just trust me. Okay. Trust me. You will. I don't know I, this we movie. Will, yeah. Go, never heard of Sarah, that. watch it and I will watch it again. I've been meaning to watch it again okay. and we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll watch it. Anyway, I know a lot about Brian Wilson. I went and saw a couple years ago, he was touring and doing the um, Pet Sounds tour, like 50th anniversary or something like that. There are certain Brian Wilson songs that 
and the one that most people will cite is God only knows. You can't even understand how that song works, okay? You listen to the end of that song, which you've heard a billion times. God only knows what I'd be without you. The end of that song, what he is doing, and you have to understand, he was, I think he was 24. He went into the studio with a bunch of um, studio musicians, the Wrecking Crew, and did this on his own. It's, it makes no sense, but it is so I can't, I don't have the words. I'm going to just have to start singing. Like, well, tap onto what we were saying earlier because it's depth and transcendence and meaning and beauty. Okay. Brian Wilson has suffered uh, for a long time with different uh, demons and, and voices and there's some mental illness going on. So this documentary is actually like family approved. It's, it's, um it's, it's, uh, uh, created, directed by a family member. I think it was Brent Wilson. I don't know how he's related. So it's it's one of these, you know, they've got clips and they've got talking heads. You know, you've got Bruce Springsteen is talking and uh, somebody, Jonas, a uh, guy from the Jonas Brothers and other people, other musicians that are in there. And they're talking about Wilson and his genius. And, and you go through Wilson's life and it is, and then Wilson is in it himself at this age. He's in his seventies, I guess. And he apparently he is a nervous guy. He's a nervous guy. And you'll I'm not gonna go more deeply into that. You just watch it for yourself. But he also didn't want to like sit in a, you know, for an interview. So he drives he's being driven around in the car by a writer who I believe whose name I'm forgetting. Um, I should look it up right now. Uh Long Promised Road, directed by Brent Wilson. Uh blah, blah, blah. I can't remember. Anyway, the um the um, interviewer, he's a journalist and he'd written all these stories about Wilson, I think for Rolling Stone. And uh, and so he's sort of driving and we're listening to Wilson. I came away, obviously it's beautiful. It's beautiful to know these things and there are beautiful parts in it. It was very also disturbing to me. Um, and I don't want to kind of give away why. Um, hmm. It's just... I guess I guess it's okay to be disturbed by this because this man is a genius. Okay, I'm going to get all overcome now. He's 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 in a category of things that we can't even like touch. It's like almost like this person that's living on some astral plane and he keeps bringing it back for us. But it's also really hard to watch. It's difficult. Um, and it was also because I've been working so much and and then I'm really tired at night sometimes. Then I wake up in the middle of the night. So I finished watching it like 2.30 in the morning, not last night, but the night before. So I'm like me alone in this room and watching mm-hmm. this. It was just um, hard. But I think that that's okay. It's supposed to be that. Um, I do recommend watching it. I would watch Love and Mercy first, um, but I, I do I do recommend it. I mean, one of the things that's always been interesting about the Beach Boys is the the sort of a like lightness and beauty and sonic kind of kind of ethereal quality of their of their music in contrast to the the private torment that that Brian oh, Wilson man. has experienced. Oh my God! It's uh, it's it's it's. It's and that's what art is, that's it, what art is. You know, yeah. like it, 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 that's what one of the things it can do is to lift other people. Um, 
You know what someone told me um, a while ago, and now you'll hear it every time. Siblings that then go on to make music and they sing in harmony, those harmonies are not like other people's harmonies because you have actually like you've slept in the same room with them. You know, they're breathing like it is it, it is this, this, it's just, it's on another plane. And, and really the harmonies of the Beach Boys are. Absolutely. I'm remembering uh, the, the documentary about the Bee Gees that I watched where they talked mm-hmm. about that, you know, yeah. that those yeah. three men's voices were just like this instrument that had never been made, you know, and will never yeah. be made again. Like it's, That's right. it's, it's something that sinks in perfectly together. Um, you know, they were interviewing Liam Gallagher, Noel Gallagher. I can I always get the Gallagher's confused. Noel. It was Noel. Yeah, Noel's um, the one that is not <laughs> didn't cause as many problems as far Yeah, yeah, way. yeah. And he's the one that's usually <laughs> giving interviews, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 So what's I was once on a date. I was I was once on a date with somebody. He's really cute guy, and uh, God only knows comes on, and he was like, "I love the Beatles," and I was like, "I'm gonna forgive that." (laughs) No, he was like a moment where I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Well, okay. That's a little weird that, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some songs. I'm like, oh, I always thought it was somebody, but it was somebody else. Okay. It happens. But no, no, mm-hmm. no. I mean, you know, look, it's, it's not, yeah, it's no it's big deal. Right. It was just all, right. all this. You don't know that the Beach Boys did. God only knows. I mean, my God. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, yeah. I've, what's in your I've hot said box? dumber things. Um, speaking of dumber things that I've said, it's bugging me right now that I think I called the, the star and writer of uh, Abbott Elementary, Quinta Brunton. But her name is Quinta Brunson. I have no idea if I actually did that or not, but I need I to correct remember. it. So I need to either correct what I did differently or point out that I said it correctly earlier. So congratulations to me, or I'll try better. We'll see. Um, Whichever one it turns out to be. It's um, a cool name, actually. I like the sound of that name. But like, Quinta. Yeah, she's the fifth kid. She's, sounds. Yeah. There yeah. we go. So I know okay. I grew up. I'm sorry. One more thing. I grew up with the Lee Spike Lee kids. I, they went to, their mom was a teacher at St. Anne's where I went and um, Spike was not there. The two oldest boys, Chris and Spike were not at the school, but I knew all their other siblings and graduated with one of the brothers, but the youngest kid was a boy. His name was Sanke, like five C I N Q U E. Sanke. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So speaking of pet sounds, mm-hmm. in my hot box mm. is a very dorky documentary called Inside the Mind of the Cat. Oh, Sarah. I know. I'm such a dork. I wanted to learn how my cat worked. <laughs> how does my cat work anyway? How does my cat work? Why? What's the mystery? Does my cat love me? What's going on? I saw so, it on Netflix and I was like, oh, God, okay. I'm going to watch this. And then it was I really enjoyed it. It actually talked about some of the recent cat research that's been done. You may not know that there's been hard hitting cat research. There is. They're learning it more didn't. about how the cat mind works. Cats are about we're about 15 years behind dogs on this, which is one of the reasons why we're not always aware of all the things that cats know. Cats are and one of the things they point out is that cats really are these empathic creatures that that feed on our moods. I mean, look, if you don't have a cat, you may not know this, but cats really do. Um, they know your moods. And oh, I, for sure. hundred percent. And they know when you're sick, when you're sick, where does your cat yeah. go? Stays right with you. And right people are like, yeah, well, that's because, that's because they, they like to the nap. Like in it. 
Yeah, well, they want, I think they want the warmth, but, but yeah, I will but tell they also you, know. I've had a, no, they know. And there's some, like, I've had a couple of meltdowns where I've been like freaking out somewhere and my cat will come in and sit down next to me. I was Cats going on a trip one time. I had my little suitcase by outside of my bedroom door. There was a big mirror there. And I was then going in and grabbing something. And when I came back out, there was a bird. The cat had gone out and gotten a bird and put it next oh, to the yeah, suitcase. Oh, yeah. they love, And then they like, gave it to you? They're like, yeah, don't go. Don't go. Here, here. Yeah. Can, maybe, maybe, maybe you'll stay. Or maybe it's a party yeah. gift. Maybe it was like, here, get the hell out of here. It's something from me to you and I don't want to see you again. And then I have one other little cat story and then I will let you go on to tell you. I was... um. I used to go away for the summer with my mother and my daughter for a couple of weeks, and uh, I was leaving Portland, and we had a cat, and the cat was sort of like sitting on the steps looking at me in like a, in a way that it was just, it was like different. I was like, well, Kitty, of course, her name was Kitty. And I was like, Kitty, oh, I'll see you in two weeks. I'll, Kitty, I was like giving her a little rub, and she was just looking at me in a way that was different. She got run over while I was gone, and I mm. always thought she kind of like... I, I, of course, we extrapolate this stuff, but I remember at the time she was thinking, telling you. She was telling. This was you. a weird at the time, not later. Like, oh, it was like at that time. I was like, this is interesting. Why is she being so sort of somber? And I, I don't know. Maybe I we mean, had our cat yell at us one time when we'd been gone for two weeks, and we came back and we walked in the house, and she just starts going, like, oh yeah, you. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell I'll me. give you the business. Oh, they'll give you the business. Yeah. And look, you know, like I, I totally understand people that love dogs because I think dogs are amazing and dogs really treat you like you're a God and I completely get it. But cats treat you more like you're an equal, you know, like you're a partner and, uh, and I, you know, and, and they ask you to earn their trust. And I've always respected that about them. Um, that they don't give it away blindly. And it always feels like a cat's love is earned. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that I learned from this is that um, I've always had, you know, cats will do this slow blink and I'll do it back to them. And I've never even known what it was. I was just mimicking what they do. And I learned that this is like a compliment that they give, you know, like strong direct eye contact is like aggression. So they take it a little bit, uh, you know, it's harsh, but if you blink, it's kind of like blowing them a kiss or something like that. Huh. It's just like okay. it's a calming thing. So I've always done these slow blinks with cats, um, but it's like a compliment if they give it to you. It means that, that you know, we're chill. We're good. We're good, buddy. Um, and they also have found that there's these cultural differences between Japanese cats and U.S. cats, that U.S. cats are a little bit more independent and a little bit more um, able to interact with people, probably because in Japan, uh, a lot of people don't uh, have people interact with them because they live uh, in their apartments and people don't come over. They don't entertain in the house. So the cats are a little bit more nervous. Um, huh. So it, it's interesting that we're changing cats. Um, how we mm. interact with them. Mm. Um, and there's an amazing, like one of the best parts of this is like these uh, these two women from the Ukraine named the Savitskys and they do these uh, tricks with cats. They've trained cats to do stuff like, you know, you know, go upside down, uh, you know, uh, kind of Spider-Manning along these these ropes and um, jumping from things and jumping through hoops. And it's uh, it's actually really great. I'm a sucker for cat 
tricks. So yeah, I had to love that stuff. So yeah, if you if you like cats, you're looking. I mean, this is like, look, this is not a this is not a not going to be on the Emmys next year. Um, but it was just a fun little hour talking about cats and and the mysteries of them, and I enjoyed it. So. So one thing that's coming up, I sent to you a little thing about it yesterday. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it um, before it happens. But on September 18th, there is the U.S. premiere of PBS, The U.S. and the Holocaust. And it is a, uh, I think it's like a Ken Burns joint. Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. looks like, that's interesting. That's coming up on the 18th. So you can put that on your um on your calendars. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be checking that out and uh, and also yeah, don't worry, darling. We'll be coming out later this month. And also, oh, you know, yeah. Blonde, which I'm very curious about. So Blonde is the new movie about Marilyn Monroe, uh, based okay. on the Joyce Carol Oates novel that's starring oh, Anna right, Armas. Right, right. Yeah, that kind of looks at the dark side of her of her career. I'm very is interested Anna, in that. Is is Anna Diarmas the one that was in uh was in Ozark? Hmm. Who's Anna? Di- hmm. The one that's starred as the um also as the Russian fake Russian heiress. Who I don't just know who the I don't know who the actress is. I don't think she was in that. Okay. Um but she's Cuban and one of the things oh, that they're no, no, doing no, no. is Okay. Okay. Um, is that she still has a little bit of the Cuban accent, which I I find very strange. Um, but people are really loving this movie. I'm I'm finding it bizarre to still have that, but um, maybe I'll change my mind and it'll sort of like cast its spell on me. I always wanted to read that Joyce Carol Oates novel about about Marilyn Monroe, and I never got a chance to. It's a big. There's thick still one, time. So Steer- oh, yeah, well, yeah. There's no yeah. time. Um, yeah. Well. I'm going to bug out of here. I've got yes, some ma'am. interview interviews and then I got to get on an airplane and um, Hey, everybody, please subscribe. If you haven't already, there's a button. And if you want to, uh, if you want to subscribe and pay for it, I will. I love you now, but I will love you more. Oh, by the way, Matt Welch told me because I said something and I said, well, it's important. And he's like, you know, that's called like a, a glottal T when you do the double T's yeah. or something. Okay, so that's yeah. very important for everyone to know. Um, anything else, Sarah Hepler? Smoke them if you got them. Smoke them if you got them. Bye. Bye. I was sitting in a crummy movie with my hands on my
Happy 